Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today. Well, I think the only thing I'd say on that is the taxpayer does bear the onus of proof. So the ATO could say, well, all right, I don't believe that. You've got to prove it. And then the tax is for the taxpayer to actually give some positive evidence. Their orders came here. I actually had the structure. You know, you can see this photo with it. The taxpayer would need to prove it at the end of the day. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 166 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. To make the small business CGT concessions less confusing and to show you some of the peculiar features these have, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney will walk you through five case studies. Case study number one. So the first case study that I'm going to run through, it's a fairly, it's a fairly simple one, but it really emphasizes that the small business CGT concessions can be an all or nothing thing. What I mean by that is one of the thresholds is whether the taxpayer satisfies the $6 million net asset value test. If they've got net assets of $5.99 million, then they would satisfy that test. And if they have net assets of $6.01 million, then they would fail that test. Mm. And it goes down to a cent. Yeah, it can go down to the cent. So if you've got, let's say, a business worth $5.9 million, the tax you'd pay on the sale of that business, assuming that you got the 50% CGT discount, is around about $1.38 million. So you sell a business for $5.9 million and you'd pay tax of about 1.38 million. In contrast, if you had the concessions, then it could very well be a zero tax, particularly if you've got the 15-year exemption, or it could be a lower sum and a deferred sum as well. So it can make a huge difference. It's important to note that there's a number of assets that actually are excluded from the $6 million net asset value test. So you could have taxpayers that actually quite wealthy in a holistic sense, but they still meet that condition because it's only certain assets that are included. So the main ones that are excluded are a main residence that's held in an individual name, regardless of the value of that property, any assets that are held for personal use and enjoyment. That could include holiday houses. Ferraris. Yeah, Ferraris, yes. Or, or anything else that's used for personal use. Expensive paintings. Yep, yep. All kinds of gadgets. Boats. Uh, boats, yep. One thing that's not a personal use asset, though, is a bank account. Although the money could be used for personal use and enjoyment, the actual cash itself doesn't have any remarkable individual characteristic that makes it for personal. I mean, you could use cash for whatever you want. But if you had a, yeah, a Ferrari that is just used for, for personal use, then that's a personal use asset, whereas the cash is not. 
Yes. So that means pay for your around the world trip yep. before the sale of the business yeah. and not after. Yeah. And, and another one is superannuation as well. So superannuation is excluded. So although the limits on superannuation have been reduced quite a lot in recent years, if you were you know, a little bit over that $6 million threshold, it could be a good opportunity to actually you know, make those contributions to superannuation, do those renovations on your house, go on that round-the-world trip, buy that Ferrari, any of those things. It can't be artificial, but those could be legitimate costs and, you know, you've got good reasons to, to incur those costs. But those could result in quite a change in your net asset value position and therefore whether or not you qualify for the small business CGT concessions or not. Could you take a bank loan out before the sale? Yeah. And then that would reduce your net asset value. Where you've got liabilities, they need to be connected with assets. I see. So you can't just take a bank loan, already pay the around the world trip, already pay the Ferrari, yeah. et cetera, and then use the money later on that you get from the business sale to repay this yeah. loan. So you yeah. can't do that because that bank loan is not connected to a Yeah, it doesn't have asset. any it doesn't have any nexus to the assets that are included in the test. So simple example, if you've got a bank overdraft for a business, then that's the liability that's in relation to your included assets. Or if you've got an investment property that you rent out, the debt in relation to that property would be included because it's a net test. It's assets and then less liabilities. But the liabilities need to have some nexus to the assets, to the assets that yes. are included. So that, for example, if you have a mortgage on your family home, that mortgage doesn't count because the family home is not in the net assets. Yeah, correct. So to take that example further, if you've got a family home and an investment property, let's say the family home is completely excluded and the investment property is not, and they've both got debts on them, well, it makes sense for the debt to be, for these concessions, it makes sense for the debt to be over the property that would be included. So, yeah, it's another planning opportunity there because it's liabilities in relation to assets that are included rather than liabilities overall. The other planning opportunity there is considering what entities are actually connected with the with the taxpayer so you've got to include the assets of connected entities and if you can disconnect yourself from other entities that's going to be helpful from a 6 million dollar net asset value and the threshold for connection is still 40% or it's gen- yeah it's generally 40% and it could be depending on what it is if it's trust or company the rules apply slightly differently but yeah it's yeah. the number to to think about is 40% so as long as your share is below 40%, you only have to include the value of that 40%. Once you hit 40%, you have to include the value of the entire entity. Yeah, yeah, correct. So in this in this case study one, we've got Richard. Richard, he sells he's going to sell his business for 5.9 million and he's got he's got some other assets. He's got a family home, he's got a holiday house and he's got superannuation. And regardless of the value of those assets, they're, they're completely excluded from the test for the reasons that we've just gone through. In this example, he's also got a bank account worth 300000 And as I said, cash is not excluded, so it would be included. 
So we've got 5.9 plus 300,000. Well, that's so over, over. Six thousand, yeah, over the $6 million limit. So the example that goes around is, well, you could buy a Ferrari, buy a Ferrari for $300,000. And Richard's dream was always to buy that Ferrari. So And so the Ferrari counts as a personal use asset, hence doesn't go into the yep. net yep. asset value test. Hence, Richard is back below 5.9 million. Below, yep, below the 6 million at 5.9 can claim potentially claim all the concessions and get the, the capital gain tax free. So mm. it's a bit of a no, but it's a good example. Yeah, I think it's, it's a, the it, only example where buying a Ferrari would help you to save money. Yeah, correct. You would, you would normally think that that's going to be a, a, a you know a sink of money, but um, it could actually potentially you know, yeah. Yeah, in save this case, money. he spends three hundred thousand dollars on a Ferrari and he saves one point three eight million in tax. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Correct. That's yep. a good return on investment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Case study number two. Another case study that I wanted to to talk about is an example of what could happen under the previous rules that now can't occur. And it's this example where you own less than 40% of a company. So we've got Bill the billionaire and he owns 39.9% of Billco. Let's say the company's worth $10 billion just for nah, just to make it extreme. The other 60.1% is owned by unrelated parties. So Bill Bill's over 55 and he wants to sell out. Now, he's very wealthy and he's owned his shares for more than 15 years, but he's actually an enthusiastic chef and wants to buy a small restaurant with turnover of less than $2 million. If Bill was to do that before the in the income year in which the sale of Bilco happened, he would be a small business entity and would therefore potentially be eligible to claim the concessions on the sale of his very, very valuable shares in, in Bilco. Would he have had, under the old law, would he have had to sell the restaurant? No, no. Yeah. So under the old law, he could have even started the restaurant in the, in the same after, income year. Yeah, after the sale as well. So let's say you sold the shares in Bilco on 1 August, could start the restaurant on 1 January, even after the sale, as long as it was in the same income year, he would therefore be a small business entity and therefore meet that condition. So... You can see that there's a sort of a few things that sort of don't sound quite right about that. So what the new provisions do is, well, Bill selling shares. So there's these new conditions that need to be met. So when we calculate the test for Bill, he doesn't meet the, small, the $6 million net asset value test, but he is a small business entity with turnover of less than $2 million. So tick for Bill. Now under this new test, we need to test for Billco as well. And Billco quite clearly is not either, doesn't have a net assets of less than $6 million and doesn't have turnover of less than $2 million. So, so now no concessions anymore in that, um, in that scenario. The rules are, as I said earlier, these new changes limited to sales of shares or units. So if you slightly alter those facts from the case of Bill the Billionaire, let's say now instead of, let's say instead of owning shares, he, he owns some land and he's previously run a business on that land Many, it could be many years ago, the business could be closed down. Let's say that land's worth $100 million. It's an active asset because he's, he's run a business on the land. Let's say he's run it for at least seven and a half years. So that land's an active asset. 
decides to sell the land. You could still use that same example of acquiring the restaurant and being a small business entity because those rules that I was talking about apply to sales of shares or units. Let's say there's a farmer farmed his land for 20 years and he stopped because it got too tough. Yeah. So now 30 years later, he wants to sell the land. Yep. The land would still qualify because it once, it once was, was active. Was once active. Bill doesn't need to be running a, a business now. It's enough that he used the land 30 years ago to run a business. For that condition, but then Bill would also need to be have net asset value of less than $6 million dollars. Let's say the land was, was worth too much, too much assets. It could still qualify by now starting a business. I see. Unrelated. So to qualify, of course, to qualify for the two million turnover yeah. test, you need to be running a business now. Mm, correct. So, so in that case, that same Bill just starts a kid's camp yeah. for a few weeks on his land. So it's a, well, it doesn't even have to be on the land. It could be somewhere completely different, yeah. um, have no connection to the land. Ice cream trolley or something. Yeah. yep. And the way that these integrity measures have been put in, they've only been put in in relation to shares or units. So the same circumstance could happen in relation to other assets that are not typically land, land that has been used previously in a business setting that is now not used could still qualify under that uh, under that small business entity measure. But the land must have been used in a business. So, it yes. so it, if it only had only been ever rented out, so yeah. it hadn't been a business, then it wouldn't qualify even if I now run a small business. Yeah, because in that case, you would be a small business entity, but the land wouldn't be active because it hadn't been used in a business that's carried on by you. You couldn't just have completely passive land that's and then suddenly get the concession. There had to be some business activity at some point in time. It's just that that business activity might not have, might have ceased a long time ago. Case study number three. The next case study is to illustrate the concessions often thought about where there's a sale to a third party for cash. You know, I'm, I'm selling my business, I'm getting out, and that's the end of it, I'm getting cash for it. But the concessions can also be used in a non, in more of a restructure type setting. So if a taxpayer has a structure that they would like to change, there are various rollovers that may or may not help with that, such as the small business restructure rollover, or some of the other rollovers that are contained in the in the tax acts. Another way of doing it is using the small business CGT concessions. As a refresher, we've got a transfer. It doesn't matter whether you've got cash or not if you're transferring between related parties. The, the way the CGT rules work is that you'd be deemed to have market value. So that's why it can sometimes be hard to move structures around in a restructure setting. That's why various concessions are required in the first place. But the, the, the concessions can be used as a way of restructuring existing businesses. For instance, if you have an ownership setting that's not quite right, it could be individuals who own shares in a company and, and they want to have trust instead, or it could be a family sale as part of a succession piece and they don't want to wait till someone passes away and they want to, they want to transfer the business now. 
And you can get a lot of those same benefits that the small business concessions bring in those kind of settings. You could put money into super or assets into super and you can you can actually sort of extract the value of the the entity as well in in some circumstances where in some circumstances doing an internal restructure so it's important when you're sort of thinking about well i want to move some things around internally restructure but i don't want to you know trigger tax on doing that this small business cgt concessions can be a way of actually doing that achieving those goals and actually getting tax benefits at the same time as a as a bit of an incidental bonus yeah case study number four i want to just touch on two more case studies now we talked earlier about the fact that under these new rules where you're selling shares or units, you need to test the entity itself. So I've just got the example of, of Tom, Dick and Harry. They each one third unit holders in a unit trust and the unit trust has a value of $15 million. Tom, Dick and Harry don't have any other assets at all. Let's say they want to sell their units or transfer their units. Could be an internal restructure. Tom, Dick and Harry would each have a net asset value position of $5 million dollars. That's the value of their units. And they don't need to include the value of the unit trust because they each have less than 40%. But under these new provisions, a separate test needs to be done for the unit trust itself. Does a unit trust have net assets of less than $6 million? And if it's got a value of 15, a net value of $15 million, then clearly doesn't have a net asset value of less than $6 million. The interesting point to note is, again, that these new provisions apply only to sales of shares or units. So if you had the exact same circumstances, but instead of being a unit trust, you had a partnership, Tom, Dick and Harry, one third partners in a partnership worth $15 million, and Tom, Dick and Harry were to sell their interest in the partnership, that would still qualify, that could potentially still qualify for the small business concessions. Because in that circumstance, what's being sold is not shares or units what's being sold is an interest in a partnership which is a very different thing so it's sort of i mean structuring is a very large topic but it's one sort of thing to consider when when structuring that with these changes it can actually be better in terms of accessing the concessions to be in a partnership structure because you're not subject to these new rules about looking at the entity in the, in the partnership setting you would just you just look at each partner on their own and not not have to not have to look at the partnership. Case study number five. So so in this case study, this case study has a look and asks a few questions about the active asset test and, and particularly in relation to land and land that might be used for multiple different purposes. So in this example, Mr. and Mrs. Smith own a 10-hectare property and they purchased it in 1986 just after the introduction of CGT and it was purchased as their family home. Now it's in an urban growth corridor and it's been rezoned for development. 
developers offered $15 million to buy this land. The Smiths are builders and they conduct a business that has a likely turnover of less than $2 million. Now, they run their business from another site, but they also store their work truck equipment and building supplies in a large shed on the property. And the question is, well, can the Smiths claim the small business CGT concessions in this scenario? If you think about the first condition, it's, well, do they have net assets of less than $6 million or do they, are they a small business entity with turnover of less than $2 million? Turnover mm. of yep. less than $2 million. Yep. So they have turnover of less than $2 million. The question then becomes, is this, is this land an active asset? So to recap, the, the land has been used as, as family home, but there has been some business-related activity on part of the property, on a large shed on the property. Would you divide the property? So say, okay, this part of the property where the shed is, is connected to the business, so that portion of the capital gain can fall under the small business CGT concessions, but the rest was a family home. Can you kind of subdivide the land into different parts for CGT purposes? I mean, the only way of doing that would be to physically subdivide them. If you could physically subdivide the property, that would change things because then you've got separate assets that might be quite different to each other. For instance, if you, you know, you, you subdivide the family home and then you subdivide the the business area. But in a lot of cases that won't really be, be possible or I see. Practical. So for CGT purposes, you can't cut land in different tranches. No. It go by the official land title. If it's different land titles, then yes, but yeah. if it's all this on the same title, then you can't yeah. it's a bit of an all or nothing thing. It's if you've got one title as the Smiths do in this example, it's a question of whether that whole land is an active asset or it's not. It's kind of another one of these points where it, it either is or it isn't mm -hmm. and there's not, you know, a grading threshold or a pro ratering or anything. It's, mm -hmm. it's either an active asset or it's not. And so what's the answer? Well, it's a good question. I'll give a little bit more information. So when you go to the definition of an active asset, it's an asset that you own and use or hold ready for use in the course of carrying on a business. And then the business needs to be carried on by you or someone connected. So the relevant threshold is whether it is used in the course of carrying on a business. So the, the legislation just says used. It doesn't say predominantly used or significantly used or majority used or substantially used. It doesn't qualify use. It just says used. I see. So that, that means it's in. Well, yeah, well. In a lot of cases, I think this case study probably would be in, subject to how much of the land is used. There was a case last year in the AAT called Russ, and in that case, quite a small port. It was similar facts to this, but quite a small portion of the land was used. They didn't give the exact percentage, but it was quite a bit under 10%. And in that case, the member for the tribunal said that The land was not used because it was such a small amount. The land was not used. The ATO have taken the position in, in recent cases. They've argued that essentially used should be read as substantially used or main use. Thankfully for taxpayers, that has been rejected in a more recent case called Eichmann, which is a 2009 case. And that case is actually very similar to that fact scenario. The taxpayers 
applied for a private ruling and they had two blocks of land. One was their main residence and the one next to it was used, had some sheds on the property that was used to store material. The ATO in the private ruling said, no, that's not an active asset. They went to the AAT and the ATO said, oh, it's got to be main use. It's got to be substantially used. The AAT said those words don't appear anywhere. All that's required is use. So kind of it leaves the door open to what is what is use? What's enough? If the whole property, if 99% of the property is vacant, I'd say that's probably not going to be the whole of the land can't be used. It's got to be, it's somewhere in there, but, but where, I, where it lies is a good question. Yes. I can imagine it's a huge back door mm. because once you realize that this is on the table, you just move your trucks mm. onto your large property. Yeah. I, the ATO is unlikely to bring forensic experts who do soil testing to test whether the trucks have been there for the last 10 years or only for the last 10 days. Yeah, yeah, because the active asset test is a time test as well. You've got to meet the requisite timing period. So it, it can be very difficult, yeah. So there is no requirement that the land, for example, must be on the books of the business, for example, because then it will be a lot easier to track it. Mm. But the land doesn't have to be on the books of the business You can just then suddenly come up with this land and say, oh, by the way, we use this land to store some of our tools or some of yeah. our truck. How is the ATO to show whether that has been happening for the last seven and a half years yeah. or whether that just has been happening in the last six months? Correct. And again, also the test is about in the course of carrying on a business. It's not the business. It could be a separate business. So long as it's used in a business – You know, you can have that example of the milk bar and all that kind of stuff. You can qualify through yes. through that. So then yeah. payer can say, okay, 10 years ago, I ran this failed business of an, I don't know, something like an ice cream factory. Yeah. And the business went under. But... I just realized, actually, while we ran the ice cream factory, we did store some milk containers mm. on this piece of land. That was yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah, had some sheds on the, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was 10 years ago. Who's going to prove that, yeah. whether that is true or false? Well, I think the only thing I'd say on that is the taxpayer does bear the onus of proof. So, I mean, it could be the ATO could say, well, All right, I don't believe that. You got to prove it, and then the tax it's for the taxpayer to actually give some positive evidence that That's oh, you know, their orders came here. I actually had the structure. You know, you can see this photo with it. So the, the taxpayer would need to yeah. prove it at the end of the day. That's a very good point. The yeah. onus of proof is on the taxpayer, not on the ATO. Yeah. If the onus of proof was on the ATO, then the <laughs> ATO wouldn't have any chance of proving whether yeah. the use was true or not. But since the taxpayer has to prove yeah. that they used it, then yeah, then it's less of a backdoor. Yeah, but I could I've come across these kind of situations where you know sometimes it's black and white; it's a factory and it's just for business use. But a lot of the time, it could be you know land, it's a home, it's got some vacant stuff, it's quasi business, and yeah, it could be difficult to work out whether it's in or out. And it's a good one to try to get a private ruling or to get detailed advice to confirm what position before taking a position on on those kind of things. And it's a huge thing. There's a huge explosion in businesses that are run from home. Yeah. When you then sell, but actually it's not so relevant. I thought it would be relevant, but it's not relevant because the home is... Yeah, the main residence is, exemption. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. Exactly Only if it's a large property somewhere outside a capital city that's more than the size requirement of the main residence exemption more than the two hectares, then it would be 
Yes. Could be relevant for that circumstance, but yeah, yeah. normally. You but then again, the main residence exemption doesn't apply to the extent that you use your home for income-producing purposes. So then CGT yeah, would come back in, but then there. you could use the small business CGT concessions again to eliminate yeah. that capital gain again. Yeah, yeah. Or if you had your home in a company or trust or something that doesn't get the main residence exemption, it could be. Yeah, you can think of all kinds of circumstances where it would be um, could be relevant. Yeah, mm, yeah. Point. Welcome back. So the onus of proof for all this is on the taxpayer, not the ATO. In the next episode, episode 167, Heather Smith of Inese Consulting in Brisbane will talk about accounting apps. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks, or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of U.S. consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com brands to learn how it do. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands, and you could be the one talking instead of me.